Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the first book of the Bible, that of Genesis chapter 1. I want to read the text and then I'll introduce kind of where we're going this morning. Genesis 1, and as you see there, we'll be reading three verses in Genesis 1, and then I will uh, turn over probably just a page in your Bible to Genesis 2, beginning at verse 15. So let's read uh, God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word to us. Genesis 1, verse 26. In the midst of this creation week, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then moving down to um, verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. We thank God for his word and ask him now to help write its truths upon our hearts. Well, as you know, normally our... Our pattern of uh, preaching and teaching here is that of expository or expositional preaching where we will typically take a, um, a verse or a, a book of the Bible and work ourselves through it verse by verse. And um, that is, uh, as, as I, like I said, the kind of the warp and woof of our preaching and teaching ministry here, and um, probably 99% of, of what we do. But from time to time, we do find it helpful and necessary to focus in on a, on a topic that otherwise might not get uh, the same attention if we were just going through books of the Bible, um, depending on things that are happening uh, in our world. And that is the case... Um, that is the case today. Um, we are embarking on a series. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how long it will take, but my plan is to take us through this series about 
biblical manhood or womanhood, and I've changed the name a few times. The name you have, I think, in your handout, I actually changed even this morning from uh, a biblical anthropology, which means understanding us, understanding humanity, human beings, from a biblical perspective, because we're really focusing on a part of that biblical anthropology, and that is this topic of being, what does it mean um, in the Bible's definitions of manhood and womanhood? And uh, that's what we're going to look at today, focusing this morning on the theology of gender. What does the Bible have to say about these things? And then after we're done with this, uh, it'll be you know, toward, closer to Advent, and Lord willing, um, we will uh, launch into an exposition of the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, which is perfect for, for Advent. So that's, that's the plan. I want to overview for you what my goal in this study is, and... Um, the question arises, what are, what are our roles as men and women distinctly and differently in this world, especially what are our roles in the home and in the church? And asking the question that way makes it clear that this is not just a, a married person's issue. This is an issue for us as men and women because it is addressing the way we relate to one another, not just in the home, but also in the home and the church. And for the sake of complete disclosure, I need to go ahead and say that I am indebted to a, a whole bunch of helpful resources, that most of the information and structure that I'm giving to you over the weeks to come have, have come from various sources that I'm kind of cobbling together. Uh, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, or CBMW, is a very helpful resource for many of the questions we're going to address. Uh, writings by everybody from John Piper to Wayne Grudem to Owen Strachan to Denny Burke, Alex Strock. Uh, Paul and Ted Tripp, Martha Peace, and more have all become very helpful in many of their books I would recommend uh, to you in further study about a particular part of this topic. Okay, So let's, let's get into the introduction here and ask the question, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? On one level, those should be simple questions, right? The sorts of questions that you learn the, uh, the answers to in biology class. But of course, now in 2022, these are loaded questions. They're anything but simple. We live in a day when many people dispute that your physical or biological sex has any necessary connection to what they might call your gender identity, your sense of how masculine or how feminine you are. And so consequently, signs on bathrooms that read boys or girls have become controversial all of a sudden. I mean, beyond the question of our physical bodies, we've also got to wrestle with the lightning rod debates on whether men and women are wired differently. I mean, in the past, there were different expectations embedded in the cultural fabric of how men and women are to behave, how they dress, what jobs that they do, and some of that may be for good, some of it for ill. But what it is clear is that today, there are you know, feminist gurus who are telling women to lean into everything, break every glass ceiling, destroy all patriarchy, and sit at the head of every boardroom. All the while, don't forget, you're supposed to do this while raising perfectly balanced, Harvard-bound kids with scholarships for degrees in self-discovery and new age gender studies. And if you're not doing all of this, then somehow you're a failure as a woman. TV shows and movies suggest that gender is... Fluid and traditional gender roles should be abandoned as relics of a misogynistic past. Now, in response to this, others have embraced 
and reacted against this and embraced an over-masculinized view of patriarchalism. This happens both inside and outside of churches. That encourages men to dominate women and reject progress being made in terms of equality in the workplace and culture. You add to this a rejection not just of gender roles and norms, but a whole panoply of sexual persuasions that gets longer every day. From just LG came LGB to LGBT to LGBTQ to LGBTQIA, and now they just put a plus at the end to cover anything that they might have missed. My point is that in our culture, it is not that easy to answer those opening two questions. What does it mean to be a man, and what does it mean to be a woman? And a lot of people would protest that those questions themselves are hopelessly outdated and even offensive. Now, our world is rightly outraged at harassment, abuse, and violence committed between the genders. And traditionally, the majority of that has happened by men against women. From Hollywood studios to gymnastics, medical offices, people are asking if men can be trusted. And so for us, the question is, is there a biblical vision of gender roles and sexuality that is actually good for human flourishing? And that would be in alignment with what God has revealed in his word. That's what I'm going to try to look at in these next weeks, to understand God's good design and his will for us in these areas. And, and I pray uh, that this would be helpful because of the cultural uh, milieu in which we live. I would ask for your prayers for me because, as I told a couple people, including us, Tom Brian, this week, writing topical sermons is not my favorite thing. It's really hard. I say it's probably not hard for some people who just want to spout whatever they want, <laughs> but it's hard for me because I really want to do justice to every text that I'm going to bring up. And so just pray that God would give me wisdom about how to break apart this series and how to do it and so forth. So let's go through the basics. What, um, let me explain how I'm going to use the word gender. Because as I've mentioned, some totally uh, today completely differentiate between the words sex and gender, arguing that biological sex is only biological, while gender refers to cultural, psychological, and behavioral aspects of masculinity and femininity. Now, I understand that distinction, and that is how a lot of people employ these terms now, but what I want to argue is that gender is really a comprehensive category. It includes the, sex, the biological sex of our bodies, but it also extends to the dispositions that God has designed us to have as men and women. So I'm going to use gender to refer to both the sexual differentiation that exists between men and women in the world and the disposition and roles that God has given to us. Yes, there are expressions of gender that are merely cultural, they are not in the Bible, and they're not necessarily part of God's design. For example, dressing baby boys in blue and girls in pink. That's a cultural expression of gender that isn't normative across cultures. It wasn't even normative in American culture. If you go 120, 130 years ago, pink was considered a boy's color, not a girl's color, if you can believe it or not. It's hard for us to think of that, but it's the truth. So th those aren't the types of things that we're going to be worried about here. Those things do change from culture to culture, from... Uh, ethnicity to ethnicity. <clears throat> but there are some facets of gender that are innate to how God has made us. And those are the things that we're going to be exploring. What's our methodology going to be? Well, <clears throat> we're going to rely primarily, and, and, and Lord willing, on the sufficiency of Scripture. My main job is not to be a, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor. I'm not 
going to be so concerned with those types of questions, though we'll bring them up because they connect here and there. But primarily, my job as a preacher of the scriptures is to focus in on theology. The doctrine teaches that not only is the Bible authoritative and completely true, this is what sufficiency of scripture tells us, but it also says that it contains that which we need to guide and instruct us in a life that honors God. Paul told Timothy that scripture equips the man and woman of God for every good work. So the plan is to be clear where scripture is clear, to be guarded where scripture isn't as clear, and to engage charitably at all times with those who may be deceived, who may be disagree, and even those who are our enemies in this era. And what we'll see on the topic of gender is that sometimes the Bible is prescriptive, meaning it prescribes particular roles, particular types of stewardship for men and women in certain relationships and contexts. And where scripture, it is, where, where scripture is prescriptive, then it is our duty to obey that prescription. At other times, the Bible is mainly descriptive. It describes and depicts and portrays men and women and how God created us. And there may not be an exact command to obey or prohibition to follow. Still, even in those types of passages, Scripture is a sufficient guide for us. We just have to have wisdom to figure out how we can best live in light of the patterns and principles that we see and integrate them into the whole of Scripture. Now let me say too that because God gives the gift of gender to every person he's created, the truths that we're discussing are relevant for every conceivable stage of life. But on individual weeks, whether you're young or old, single or married, an employee, a boss, a church member, a deacon, an elder, what we're talking about in all these messages should have some implication for you though those implications may look different depending on the relationships and roles and stewardships that God has given to you specifically. Now, the view that I'm going to be promoting over the course of our study is often called complementarianism. And this is as opposed to egalitarianism on one side and patriarchalism on the other side. So let me give you some of these definitions because these are going to be things that we're going to be interacting with. Egalitarianism teaches essentially that men and women are equal and that there are no distinctions that are proper to men and women in the home, in the church, in the world, uh, at all, ever. So therefore there is no real sense of male headship, spiritual leadership in home or church. Men and women can exchange all functions equally and without distinction, apart from maybe, and even within this group, again there are differences, but even apart from biological barriers that are yet, um, we're unable to conquer them at this point. And when this is in the church, it's often called Christian egalitarianism or Christian feminism. And these folks say that because there is no difference between men and women, they would say that's according to creation and even according to redemption, Therefore, any role distinctions are not biblical, but they're really just about the oppression of women, the subjugation of women under the tyranny of men, and therefore they ought to be rejected. Now, as I mentioned, each of these, I'm giving you the broad definition. 
no two Christian feminists will have the same answers to some of the questions that we might ask. And so I recognize that, just like not all complementarians or patriarchalists are going to agree on every point. I'm trying to give you just the, the general idea. Now, on the complete opposite side is those who believe in a term called patriarchalism. This, uh, these way of thinking teaches that men and women, though sharing some common characteristics, are utterly different, and that society, whether it's at home, at church, in the workplace, in politics, in uh, business, wherever it is, is best ordered with men, particularly father figures, who dominate and rule over areas of leadership. And again, there is a secular version of this, and there's a Christian version of this. And Christian patriarchy, or patriarchalism, teaches that this is God-given authority. And these folks would react very strongly against any form of feminism and egalitarianism. And would say that this authority extends to the business world and to the political sphere as well. They reject any encroachment of feminism into society, everything from dress codes to haircuts. They often have a very low view of singleness and celibacy, regardless of the reason. And in churches, women are often not allowed to vote on church matters. They may not lead in any type of Bible study. They may not speak publicly at church gatherings and so forth, and, and, they, and they have reasons for why they believe these things. So that's on one side you have egalitarianism, on the other side you have patriarchalism, and again, there are variations within each of those. Now somewhere in the middle, although admittedly it's not like if you have zero and a hundred that complementarianism is right smack dab as 50. To be fair, complementarianism probably is slightly closer to patriarchalism than it is to egalitarianism, if you're going to put it on a, on a spectrum, okay? But let's describe what complementarianism is. It simply means this, that God has created men and women equal in their essential dignity and personhood as human beings made in the image of God, but he has also made them different and complementary in terms of their roles and in terms of relationships. And the differences between men and women are actually designed by God. They're not unfortunate, but they're actually good things. And they're designed to help one another, to aid one another in areas of weakness. And so God has created men and women equal in dignity and personhood, but different and complementary in function and role. With male headship in the home and the believing community, the church being understood as part of God's created design. And what we want to try to do over the course of our study is to foster and to see, is this a biblical view of manhood and womanhood in the family and in the church? Now, there are several reasons why this is really important. One, it's never safe for Christians or the church to act unbiblically or to ignore the Bible's clear teaching. The Bible has a lot to say about male-female relationships in the church and family, and we shouldn't neglect it. Especially today, when the church is tempted to compromise with our surrounding culture, as opposed to obeying biblical norms. And that's precisely what is happening in the church today. God's word regarding manhood and womanhood in church and family are being ignored and undercut, and maybe you have felt the cultural pull and have been embarrassed about maybe the things that you think the Bible teaches in terms of how that relates to what our culture might think, what some of your friends and family might think. That's probably common. 
Another reason is that, well, when biblical manhood and womanhood is denied, when it's altered, when it's unpracticed, it actually doesn't help, but it results in disasters both for families, families, marriages, and the culture as, as, as a whole. Unbiblical husband and wife relationships, for instance, can lead not only to marital failure, but to gender confusion, first order societal problems in our culture that we're beginning to see. And there's actually research on this that's frankly scary, which is a reminder that theology is practical, and when we ignore the Bible's theology, it has a very unpleasant practical result on our society within the church and the home, but also on our culture. The way a young man learns how a woman is to be treated is normally, and first of all, by watching the way his father treats his mother. The way a young woman learns how she is to be treated by a man is by watching her father as he relates to her mom. So the dynamics and relationships set into a child's mind for good or for ill, and it's usually a little bit of both, their expectations for life. And the more deviant a behavior is from the biblical norm, the more severe the effect is upon our children and our culture. A third reason is that the issue of the nature of manhood and womanhood is very much at the heart of this cultural transition that we find ourselves in the midst of. Male and female role relationships, the definition of family, the LGBTQIA plus movement, and are all bellwether issues for our culture. These are symptoms, really, though, of a foundational shift in our culture. Behind those things is actually a whole worldview mega shift from a Judeo-Christian or mostly biblical framework, whether people really believed it or not, that's what they operated under. And that had been the case in our nation from its founding up until really about the 60s. And from then on, we have had a transition into, well, now, for the most part, culturally, we live in an essentially religiously pagan, unbiblical framework and culture. And the rejection of a transcendent creator God that we might have obligations to. So if you look behind every problem in our culture, you will likely find under it the rejection of God. Within the LGBTQ plus movements, we have observed the fastest cultural shift to occur probably in the history of the world. Alternative forms of sexuality have gone from being looked upon as unusual and taboo in culture to being the preferable cultural norm and actually make you cool and current. So when we look at family issues in our culture, you see the major symptom of our culture's rejection of of God. And this pagan framework is being actively imported into the churches by a lot of self-avowed Christian leaders and even within evangelicalism. And a final reason, this is all introduction, sorry, but I think we really have to set the stage for this if we're going to understand why we're doing this. The denial and twisting of the Bible's clear teaching on manhood and womanhood to one side or the other is one of the central ways that actual biblical authority is undermined in our times. The Bible actually speaks pretty clearly to issues such as marriage being between one man and one woman. The Bible speaks fairly clearly about the sinfulness of non-monogamous sexual activity of any kind, as well as any form of homosexual activity. 
The Bible speaks very clearly as to male-female role relationships in the home and the church. And if you can get the Bible to say what it does not say in those areas, well then folks, you can get the Bible to say anything you want it to say. So for all these reasons and more, I think it really does behoove us to spend some time as a congregation to think about this. So what we want to do today is set up the rest of the series by sort of outlining a biblical theology of gender. To walk through at least the the couple of these major chapters at the beginning of the Bible. Think about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration and survey what it means to be created male and female. This is sort of the Mount Everest or 30,000 foot view and before we climb down in the upcoming weeks and take a low, lower look, a closer look at some of these things in detail. So let's begin starting at creation. Genesis 1, we're told for the first time in the Bible, but not the last, that man, meaning all of humanity, mankind, both man and women, are, human beings, are created in the image of God. And immediately that leads us to ask the question, well, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? God created the heavens and the earth, and we learn in verse 2 that the earth was without form and void. And the first three days of creation are tasked with forming, where God makes and separates light from darkness, water from sky, and land from water. The next three days are days of filling, where God fills the heavens with lights, the waters and the seas with fish and birds, and the land with creatures. And then the climax of creation comes in verses 26 to 28 where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over everything else. So God in verse 27 created them in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them and God blessed them and told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And verse 31 says that God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good. And part of this goodness, even in Genesis 1, includes this idea of gender. Maleness and femaleness is God's idea. A God who is infinitely wise... And part of the beauty and goodness of his immaculate design is male and female he created them. In his image. The image of God is a lot of things, and we probably don't have time to cover it all this morning, but just very briefly, it means he created us in connection to himself with some of his attributes. We would call these the communicable attributes of God. Those that he can communicate, that he can share with his creation. So we have creative thoughts Now, we don't have the ability just to, God can speak and things are created, but we're we're creative creatures. We have, we're we're loving, we're, you know, you can go through the list of the attributes of God, and there are many of these things that he shares with us, but that we're created with a soul is the biggest thing throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, that we have a soul that is different. We have a different type of consciousness than that of animals and plants and other living things. And this makes us like God in a unique way. And ultimately this means we have the ability to sin, which gets us in trouble. And God has a plan through the gospel to restore us to himself through Jesus Christ, his son. 
But these people that God has created in his image are created male and female, both in his image. And that very idea, at the very beginning of creation, God calls a good thing. So the fact that there are two genders isn't an unfortunate side effect of creation. It is part of the very fabric of it. Notice that the Bible doesn't start with the differences, though, between men and women, but he does begin with their equality. Let us make mankind in our image after our likeness, he says in verse 26. So this is the, a foundational truth about all humankind, about all men and women, that we are created in the image of God. What does this mean? Well, again, the image of God defines the essence of who we are, that we are beings in the likeness of God, unlike animals, we have personhood and souls. The image of God defines our function, what we're called to do. We're called to have dominion, exercise authority, fill the earth and subdue it. So we're not only like God, but we stand as God's ambassadors and representatives, ruling his world as stewards of his creation. And the image of God marks us as relational beings because we're created male and female. He created them, we're told in verse 27. God is a relational God who exists as three persons in perfect love and and harmony. And so it makes sense that God would express his image by creating a race of people that is differentiated. That we have a male kind and a female kind within one human kind and who relate to each other. In the ancient Near East, if we think about this, uh, it was understood that the king was a The king of any tribe was the image of the god that the tribe would worship. Only the king. This extends all the way to advanced societies like the Egyptians who saw Pharaoh as the embodiment of God. This is what makes Genesis 1 so radical in that God says that not just the king of a tribe, but every man and every woman, not just the king, are made in the image of the one true and living God. Nowhere does the Bible say that men are made more in God's image than women. And from its very first page, the Bible opposes errors of sinful male dominance and subjugation that we see in a lot of cultures historically and today. Because if God defines us in, as equal in value, that should forever settle the question of personal worth between the genders. Now when we come to Genesis 2... If Genesis 1 shows us sort of maybe a Google Earth view, Google 2 zooms into street view, Genesis 2. And we dive into the sixth day of creation a little bit closer and see how those events folded. And we read that in verses um, 15 to 24, how God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Adam named all the animals and no one was fit for him and God saw that this was not good. And so he caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And so he took the rib, created Eve, and finally there was a helper fit for Adam. So that he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And God says, Moses writes, sort of as an aside to us, therefore this is why a man shall leave his father and mother and Hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And later when Jesus, in Matthew 19 that we read earlier, and and Paul begin to talk about things like marriage and men's and women's roles in the church, 
they cite Genesis 2 and show that this passage is actually expressing universal, timeless truths about men and women. And there are several differences that we see between them in this text. Number one, God created the man first and put him in the garden before Eve was created. God gave the man authority to name animals. God created the woman after the man and literally from his rib. Adam names Eve, names her, calls her woman because she came out of man. God charged the man to work and to keep the garden. And in fact, his name Adam refers to the ground from which he was formed. In Hebrew, in Hebrew it's Adama. So he actually relates to the ground itself, for that's where he came from. God made the woman as a helper fit for the man, and her name, woman, refers to the man from which she was made. And the man and the woman correspond to one another such that in marriage they form a unity and become one flesh. Now we're going to explore more about what that means in in, in a future lesson, but for now remember the charge that God gave to the man and woman in Genesis 1. It had two related parts. Exercise dominion over the earth and be fruitful and multiply. And what we see in chapter 2 is that while the man and woman need each other and joyfully fulfill God's mandate and commands, they seem to be created with distinct strengths with regard to those mandates. In verse 15, the man works the ground and keeps or guards God's dwelling place. Well, this leans toward exercising dominion. But he can't fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply on his own. He needs the woman as his helper. So it's no wonder that he names her Eve, which means life, in chapter 3, because she plays a special role in bringing about life. Now, it's subtle, but Adam's disposition seems to correspond to God's work of forming in days 1, 2, and 3. He names the animals, rules over them just as God names the lights and heaven and land. He separates and tills the garden, removes weeds, and uh, plots out you know, where a house is going to go. You know, We think about those things that early men did. While as Eve's disposition seems to correspond a little bit more closely to God's work of the filling in days 4, 5, and 6 through her It's through her that the couple will be able to actually fulfill uh, the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Adam can't do that. He needs her to do that. And she fills, there were Adam, where the man might, might set the boundaries and build a home. As any of you who are married know, it is wives who fill that home, who put the stuff in the home, who hang the stuff on the walls, Right? So that when you go into a house, this is why even when I was uh, living completely by myself, I had my mom and my sister come and say, hey, make sure that my house doesn't really look like a, uh, a 20-something guy lives here by himself. I don't want it to look like that, so help me fill my house with stuff that looks nice. you know. And so the, these are baked into creation. We see them subtly, even at the very beginning. In other words, at the risk of stating the obvious, Genesis 1 and 2 depict men and women as equal bearers of the image of God with distinct strengths in fulfilling God's creation mandates. There is a leadership role for Adam in the marriage. He names his wife and implicitly responsible for conveying God's law to her. God gives him the law before the woman is made. In the next chapter, God will hold Adam accountable for their sin, even though Eve sins first chronologically. 
And yet the woman is the relational center of gravity for the family. We learn that a man will leave his parents to cleave to his wife. She is the anchor and she is man's helper. But being a helper is a lofty calling. God is often called the helper of his people in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit, he is a comforter and a keeper, but often called a what? A helper. Does that make the Holy Spirit diminished in, within the nature of the Trinity? Of course not. But it's the Holy Spirit's role in relation to humanity. So just because she's the helper or the helpmate, doesn't make her less, doesn't make her worth less. It's just, just her role. And we notice that God's orderly created design is consistent with these dispositions. He makes man and women fit for their particular tasks. And the physical differences that exist seem to reinforce these inclinations. That men's bodies, and of course these are, we're talking about generalities, but men's bodies are statistically stronger, tend more toward creation tending and building and subduing and dominion type of activities while women's bodies are ordered toward family building and comfort and caring. And this is true, by the way, when you look at statistics. One of the more interesting statistics that I came across this week was the fact that in some of the most uh, equity-focused nations on Earth, places like Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, the Scandinavian countries tend to be on the forefront of some of this, where they attempt, they found equity in terms of uh, pay and some of these things, they were able to accomplish those, but only by forcing people into specific jobs. And after a while, people got fed up with it and said, we don't want to be told what we have to do. That's, that's too much government control. And when they lifted and let people choose what they wanted to do, guess what? Women, on the whole, tended to choose the softer sciences, more sociologically based. They were, they were more nurses than they were doctors. They were more uh, counselors and those types of jobs than they were, you know, the hard sciences. They weren't as, there are not as many women who choose engineering, for instance. When left to their own choices, women tended to choose those things. Men choose, chose to be more, again, generally, more architects and engineers and so forth. It doesn't mean that there weren't women and men in both fields. We're just saying generally. And this resulted in some of the same disparities that they originally sought to fight that you can't ultimately, you can't take this out of us because it's kind of who we're created. Well, what happened next at the fall? Tragically, of course, we know Adam and Eve disobey God and in turn God issues forth curses upon creation. Adam, who is called to work the garden now, will find thorns and thistles challenging his efforts to exercise dominion over the earth, according to chapter 3, beginning at verse 17. He who came from the ground will still relate from the ground and draw food from the ground, but his relationship with the ground will now be frustrated and he will ultimately return to the ground in death, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, or we could paraphrase it, dirt to dirt. Similarly, the woman who was to help the couple be fruitful and multiply will now find this a, calling, a challenging calling. To the woman, God said, I will multiply it's the same word as be fruitful and multiply when he says, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. And in pain you will bring forth children. 
we see that she who came from the man will still relate to the man, draw forth children together, but her relationship with the man will be frustrated. For it says, your desire shall be contrary to or for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now that's a little bit of a difficult phrase to interpret. Uh, at minimum, we see here that the woman's desires and the men's rule will both fall short of what God had intended. Their marriage was to display loving authority on the part of the man and trusting submission on the part of the woman, but those postures are no longer going to feel instinctive for fallen humankind. That's why Paul has to tell husbands to love their wives and wives to submit to their husbands. If they were doing it already, he wouldn't have had to tell them. The fact that he says, hey guys, men, you got to love your wives. That's evidence that they weren't loving them in the right way. When he tells women, you have to submit to your husbands, that it's an evidence that they're not doing it the way that God intended. That both sides are failing in their respective roles. Which makes it hard when the husband fails in his role to love his wife as Christ loves the church, sacrificially, lovingly, gloriously. Well, then that, if he doesn't do that, it, it results in a, a wife who finds it difficult to submit, to willingly and joyfully and willingly submit to her husband in areas of leadership and and determinations. And so for marriages, it's a difficult thing that we both have to take these things to heart, whether we're men or women. And at one level, Paul is reiterating there in Ephesians 5, God's good intentions for marriage, intentions which sin has made it difficult to fulfill. Both men and women need to be redeemed. And the hope of the passage comes in Genesis 3.15 that from the woman will come a male offspring who will conquer the deeds of the serpent. She will know pain in childbearing and death has entered the world but a child is coming who will deal death a fatal blow. You know, as Christians, we should never be surprised by the brokenness and confusion in our world, especially regarding gender and sexuality. Domination, disorder, disorientation, deceitful desires, gender dysphoria, all these are the painful consequences of sin. We have all experienced the effects of the fall, which means that as Christians, we can respond to all of these tragic realities with compassion and mercy as those who have likewise been affected by this curse. And for all those who taste the bitterness of the fall in their relationships or in their own struggle with identity, there is good news because, praise God, the fall is not the end of the story. But we move to redemption in Christ, where the eternal Son of God took on our human nature as a man. He was born of a woman, the promised offspring of Eve, and Scripture presents Christ as the second Adam, the perfect man. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of God. That he is the best example and best image bearer in the deepest and fullest sense so that he would offer his life as a sacrifice, rise from the grave and call men and women alike to repent and believe in him. And that those who trust in him are made new creations and united to him. So now that Christ has redeemed us from the curse, how does the New Testament teach us about living as men and women? Well, it says some new things that are interesting. It says things like Galatians 3.28 there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, neither gender has more spiritual worth than the other, 
Both women and men are heirs of redemption, part of the body of Christ, filled with the same Holy Spirit. In the church, men and women serve each other. And what we see in the New Testament is that Christ's work doesn't obliterate distinctions of roles, but it in fact redeems them. Yes, male and female are one in Christ Jesus, but in Ephesians 5, under the new covenant, God still calls wives to submit to their husbands and still calls husbands to love and lead sacrificially. In 1 Timothy 2, we see that only men are authorized to exercise authority in the church and teach the gathered congregation. And so in the redeemed community then, redeemed male leadership doesn't oppress, but is called to bless as men and women endeavor to express their common humanity according to God's original complementary design. So every church needs redeemed men and women. Men to, to lead and do some of the things that they are called to do, and women to also encourage other women, teach other women, and thank God for the women in our church who make sure certain things run. Because there's certain things I know when we get together sometimes with the deacons and we go, what, do we should, what should we do about that? There's this look around everybody with scared faces and go, we should probably talk to some ladies about that one. But that's not the end of the story either. Redemption is still part of it. But what about when we come to the very end of the story? When Christ returns and believers dwell with God in a new heavens and new earth. What do we talk about when full restoration happens? The Bible describes this Romans 8, 21, is a new creation. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Jesus teaches that human marriage will, will no longer be a thing in the new creation, for we will all corporately as the church of God be married to Christ. But gender was God's good gift in the original creation, and we can infer that in the new creation we will live not as gender-neutral, genderless individuals, but we will live as glorified, gendered people. We will continue to live as male and female because Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15 that we will all receive renewed bodies, but we will still be ourselves, that there is continuity of identity. Jesus was still Jesus. He was still a man, though he had a resurrected body. And on that day, we will perfectly bear God's image. It will no longer be distorted by our own sins or by the effects of the fall. He created us in His image as male and female, and we will gloriously bear that image perfectly in a new creation. And therefore it seems that the beautiful gift of gender will continue eternally. What a glorious day that will be for us as the curse will be totally undone and there will no longer be any conflict between men and women, nor any internal tension about the genders that God has given us. And yet on that day, the focus will not be on us, or on our manhood, or on our womanhood, but on the perfect God-man, the great bridegroom of the church, Jesus Christ our Savior. So let me encourage you to sort of keep this end in sight as we walk through some of these difficult questions and to think and remember that God in His perfect wisdom fearfully and wonderfully made you as a, a man or a woman. 
but we never earn our way into the new creation by being perfect men or women. That when it comes to biblical manhood and womanhood, we've already failed, each of us, in different ways. And therefore, we must trust the perfect man who by his death makes a way for us to be adopted into God's family, forgiven of our sinfulness, forgiven of our distortions of this in our own lives, and on that final day, live out our manhood and woman perfectly as God intends. Only because of his mercy. That's what we're going to try to do over the course of this series with God's help by his grace and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to get together to consider these vitally important issues. I pray that you would make this study profitable to us, not just interesting, but really profitable in such a way that it would change the way we relate to one another in the home, that it would make our church relationships healthier, that it would make us more energetic and happy and content in your service, and that it would bring you glory and honor and be a witness to a world that is so confused about these things. We want all these things and more to come about because we know that when you enable your people to be faithful to your word, that that is the only place where blessing can come. So help us to think rightly about these things and to stay close to your word as it instructs us in these areas.